This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome back to the e-commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled and Acadia Company. And today I'm joined by a previous guest who I'm excited to, to speak with again, Calvin Lammers, who is the SVP of e-commerce at Trough, the truffle infused condiment brand. At Trough, Calvin oversees all digital touch points and platform for the digitally native brand that has seen rapid growth both online and now offline since being founded in 2017. Welcome back to the show, Calvin. Thanks so much, Gary. Yeah, fantastic to, to be back on. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's been a minute, so it's great to be back on. So thanks for having me. So last time you were on this podcast, you were the director of e-commerce at Spindrift. So what's been going on with you since then? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's been a busy few years, both uh, in, just in the world and over on on my side professionally. So yeah, since uh, since Spindrift, um, you know, I joined uh, HealthAid, the kombucha brand, uh, to lead their e-com and digital platforms uh, during the pandemic. So I was one of the um, you know pandemic employees that made you know job switches and, and you know went went through onboarding during the pandemic remotely um, while also building out their e-commerce and in you know direct consumer uh, capabilities so that definitely was was a very interesting uh, busy uh, ride over at health aid um, spent my time you know over the last couple of years um, leading that team um, a lot of challenges in, in, in that so I know we'll get into that in a, a bit um, and then most recently just uh, joined truff as you mentioned, about a year ago now um, to lead their their e-commerce e-commerce and, and digital teams. Uh, so that's been keeping me busy over the over the last year, and it's and been moved to really LA. exciting. And moved to LA, yeah. So it's like like I mentioned, it's there's I I got married. I guess it's the last. Oh, just every, I didn't every know that. Now. Congratulations. So, yeah, it's a, a lot happening. Hard to keep track of it all. I guess. <laughs> Sure is. I I saw you in LA. People who follow me on LinkedIn may have seen we had this amazing meetup for e-commerce people in LA. And then the next day I tested positive for COVID, which was such a downer on a really, really fun, like happy hour that we had. Um, so I did see you. I hope you didn't get COVID. But thankfully, I did not. Yeah, I think I still had my anti antibodies from from earlier this year. So uh, yeah, it was a great time. And thankfully, yeah, glad you're you're you've recovered. And uh, yeah, we, we all made it out okay. Yeah, that, that, was, okay. Uh, that was a great time. <laughs> Good. So a number of news articles and industry analysis have come out over the last few weeks, concluding that it's the death of D to C, the death of the D to C model now that. You know, the narrative is that D2C was built on a house of cars. It was never going to be profitable. Unit economics are, you know, finally here to, 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 to stay. Everyone's returning to the stores. And, you know, the, the D2C model is dead, basically. Um, and I think that there are some merits to some of those arguments, which we'll get into as well. But, you know... Calvin, you're a D2C guy. You have built the D2C channels and marketplace channels for several 
brands over the years, like you mentioned, Spindrift, HealthAid, and now Truff. And I know you're a believer in the D2C model, so I wanted to have your sort of, you know, debate style uh, opposing viewpoint. So let's just start there. What do you think these end of D2C arguments are missing? Yeah, it's been really interesting um, just to see the conversation change, I guess, over, you know, pretty quickly over the last, um, you know, couple of months. And I, I know we've chatted you know, a little bit about uh, this before and have had quite a few conversations about this with others. Uh, but I think the, the biggest thing right off the bat is that it, it never was, DTC was never easy to scale profitably. It, it was always very challenging, especially for the food and beverage space and especially for lower priced ASP food and beverage items. Uh, I think I, I definitely have had maybe a, a different experience and then some brands given uh, a lot of the brands that I've worked with uh, have been a little bit more premium, uh, higher price point um, that has helped offset that. But it, it, it always has been challenging. There, I think the thing that's changed is the, the market reaction and perception to the idea that uh, it is very costly to scale and acquire new customers in the DTC channel. So I think there's been you know, maybe an overcorrection uh, or the pendulum has, has swung a little bit too far in, in kind of uh, the reverse uh, against that idea because nothing really has changed in the marketplace. Yes, acquisition costs have gone up, uh, but a lot of these deep brands haven't just become unprofitable or, or uh, you know, their, their economic model hasn't changed. It's just the perception has, has changed um, to that, um, to that, that, you know, marketplace, I guess. Um, and I, I do feel that's a little bit of an overcorrection. Um, I guess the other thing that I think sometimes gets missed in this conversation is the original role for DTC. And again, this may be different than some others perceive DTC or how they view DTC, but I've always, you know, really saw the strongest value, um, you know, again, in the food and beverage space, because that's where I spent most of my, my time, is that it, it's perfect and has role for emerging brands it should not or, or is not a primary sales first channel uh, especially as you reach scale and widespread distribution uh, food and beverage grocery still largely take place in, in physical retail not online even after the pandemic you know the majority of customers are buying their food and beverage their grocery items in store so you really should be viewing the plastic discovery uh and in marketing and you know uh, exploration platform for your brand to reach new consumers, build up your know, visibility and, and trial for your brand and leverage that uh, both for insights, for marketing, for innovation, but to support your broader distribution, especially if you're a grocery brand. That is a really interesting point. So D2C, D2C only is, is likely not a good strategy, especially for a CPG brand that may have low average selling price, lower sort of uh, potentially lower lower profit margins than other categories like electronics, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so it shouldn't be the primary sales channel is what you're saying. I don't. Yeah. What role does it what what is the role of D2C today, do you think? Yeah, I think today, um, and I think this is where Truff is, is a prime example of that, where uh, Truff was a you know digitally native DTC first brand. That was the first channel um, we were available on. Uh, and we built up a huge following, a lot of hype, grew tremendously via our, our DTC um, platform. And that is the first touch point for how a lot of customers first discovered us, first tried us. Uh, we were able to leverage that hype, that demand, um, our social following to then break into retail 
uh, and improve out uh, the concept of, of a higher price point um, hot sauce, uh, which, you know, if you're kind of trying to make that sales pitch in, into, into retail, you're, you're likely going to get uh, you know, a lot of no's without any uh, evidence to, to, to back up that there is a demand and, and a strong brand mm. behind it. So that's how I've seen it. And I think that even goes back to my experience with Kind, um, Kind Snacks, uh, Kind Bar. That was kind of an early example of a disruptor brand in the food and beverage space that really leveraged um you know the dtc channel to uh cut through you know a very entrenched you know granola bar category um without distribution we were able to have widespread spread availability drive trial and awareness for the brand um you know because at the end of the day as a food and beverage brand you need to try the product uh and so that was uh, our, our primary way of uh of first getting in in front of customers and first driving trial. Um, and then obviously as the brand grew, um, that shifted into more of a discovery, marketing, innovation, um, you know, channel. And I think that's where it, it, it's all dependent on kind of the stage that your, your brand um, is at with, with how it evolves. And I think you have to have that mindset that it should not, your DTC channel should not be a static, um, you know, monolithic, monolithic uh, um, you know, channel or, or piece in, in, in your mix, um, because it, it should uh, evolve as your brand grows and as your availability um, changes. Uh, you, you should you know, be open and, and ready to, to evolve the, the purpose it, it, it has along with that. Okay, so riddle me this. <laughs> so, <laughs> snacks.com. So that is, uh, you know, Cheeto, that's a Frito-Lay uh, D2C property, yes. mm -hmm. Cheetos, Sunships, Ruffles, they all have national distribution. Those are all brands that we already know. So what is the, you know, if you, you're speculating on this, obviously, yeah. um, what's the, what's the play with snacks.com from Frito-Lay? I see that, and again, this is all hypothetical without knowing sure. their their, uh, their their direct um, kind of strategy. But I think it's a customer data play. I, I think that's a hundred percent the mm -hmm. primary focus, um, and I think that is that that is another valid um, reason to be investing in the DCC channel. Is you know you know, first party data, you know, building out your DMP, um, especially for a company like Frito-Lay, they obviously have access to massive sets of, of customer data, but having uh, a DTC channel to to own that data um, first party is massive. So I prim primarily see that as a data play for them. Um, and I think that they're they're doing a good job and, and taking the right approach to that. I think the what mm -hmm. maybe has happened sometimes in, in the DTC space and what uh, again maybe has gotten some into trouble is there is the the idea or the buzzword about first party data i need data that's why we're launching dtc your channel mm -hmm. but then if you don't know how you're utilizing that data yeah. or actually doing anything with it then it's kind of a, a a sunk cost and a waste and so i think that's another factor where you just it, I, I like to draw the comparison where it, it's kind of similar to the dot-com bubble, whereas we're, obviously there, we came out and there's so many, uh, there, Amazon came out of the dot-com bubble and there's you know, the, the strongest survived, but there were a lot of um, overinvestments and a lot of, um, uh, I guess, hopping on the bag, bandwagon, so to speak, without really any any you know, forethought put into it that that is now kind of seeing a reckoning happening as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about, I think you're totally right. The, the, the promise of data is very strong with D2C, but how and if brands are using it is another yeah. question. I think about the early marketing messages of brands, of the early um, D2C brands like Casper. Right. Where 
we're a mat we're a new type of mattress company we're cutting out the middleman so that you can get a mattress cheaper that's higher quality and there was a subtext in those messages which was traditional retailers are wasteful and bad yeah yep. <laughs> um and I think that that is where, you know, what, as we're seeing sort of really divisive messaging and, you know, the traditional retail people are saying, ha, huh, I was right, this could mm-hmm. never succeed. Um, <laughs> and the D to C people are sitting sort of on, on the other side. That's sort of why it got a little bit combat- combative, I think, is that For the sure. early days of D to C were, you know, it, it was a black and white, right, good and evil kind of narrative. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think I, I've definitely seen that um, firsthand at some of these brands, um, you know, and, and not to say that that's gone away completely, but yeah, I, I think it, it was much more combative and you would have retailers that um, going back to the kind example that were very um, upset with, um, you know, any actions or, or activities that we did on our, our DTC business that might undercut um, the, the retail business and that even with the sales team mm. that sometimes was challenging. Um, I think mm. that still exists, but I, I think the, the um, extremes of, of that argument have, have subsided a little bit, um, which has been yeah. interesting to see. And yeah, and like you said, uh, from the jump, D2C wasn't e- ever easy and D2C, in, in your opinion, shouldn't be the primary sales channel. That's just not going to work. So there's a there's a play around um, leveraging D2C to, to prove demand and then using that as an opportunity to expand traditional retail footprint or potentially marketplaces as well, which we haven't talked about yet. But, and then there's also a data play as well. 100%. Um, any other use cases for D2C um, in this era? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, going going back to my, my you know, current uh, current brand, Truff, uh, I think we're a prime example of how, um, obviously, we, we leverage our, you know, DTC success and, and expanded in, in retail, um, you know, pretty quickly and, and really seeing solid growth there. Um, so where does that leave DTC for us now? Um, it's still a, a primary channel for visibility, marketing, and, and awareness and, and, you know, reaching new customers. So most recently, uh, we just launched a... Uh, collaboration with uh, Hidden Valley Ranch. Um, you know, maybe at first glance, uh, there, there might be the uh, kind of perception of how does that, you know, fit that doesn't really. And just really explain like for it. people who haven't, haven't yes. seen that campaign yet, what, what that is, because I, I love it. Super cool. Yeah, so it's it's been uh, we we've been having conversations with that team for for a while now. Um, we launch a limited time only um, you know uh, collaboration where it's uh, our trough uh, hot sauce mixed with the Hidden Valley Ranch uh, in one of our um, premium uh, Magnum bottles uh, with uh, you know very high quality packaging that is kind of a blend of the Hidden Valley. Um, you know, aesthetic along with the traffic aesthetic. And uh, we launched that earlier this week and we sold out in a matter of minutes. Um, so clearly Amazing. there was uh, a massive <laughs> demand and interest um, in it. And, and I think I mentioned to you uh, uh, previously, Kiri, but uh, yeah, I think I, I was sitting on pins and needles knowing that we would have you know thousands of customers uh, going to our site uh, at the drop of the, uh, the uh, minutes here. And, and thankfully our site held up and, and we were able to sell out uh, that quickly. So it was just a phenomenal response. Uh, to that drop yes for sure and so what was the um what was the play there for 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 truff in terms of having that be 
you know that that was a d to c drop instead of a you know limited limited offer within stores why did you opt for the d to c channel for that particular drop a hundred percent. So I think uh, we really saw it as, um, you know, having a digital launch and drop like that is where we obviously, you know, uh, we know this space well, the, the brand has done just a fantastic uh, job staying uh, on uh, kind of the cutting edge of innovation and hype. And we were able to leverage, obviously, our, our fantastic social team, our influencer network um, to really build the buzz and hype and awareness with our products um, and, and this drop specifically. And it was, we saw it as a avenue to drive overall uh, kind of a conversation and awareness of the brand, um, obviously in partnership with Hidden Valley, that is, you know, uh, you know, you know one of the greatest uh, and, and legacy uh, uh, sauces and, and ranches uh, out there. And that was a new way to tap into a, a customer and audience that we maybe haven't gotten uh, or reached before because maybe they weren't hot sauce fans or they weren't truffle fans. Um, and this was a new way to kind of you know, reach this new audience, um, you know, along with a brand that we res heavily respected. Uh, so really saw that as a, a great way to do so and do it digitally. Um, and I think that's really opened up a lot of conversations about, you know, what's the, the, the future potential? Like, is there a retail component to this um, in the future? And so the team's working uh, heavily to see how we can expand, um, you know, that partnership. Uh, but again, using it at, as a digital first entry point to build the hype, build, prove, have a proof of concept, so to speak, um, and, and look at how we can expand on that in the future. So I think it very much fits with our kind of mentality and approach um, with the brand as we've done for the, for the last five years as well. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what, where this, the D2C skeptic argument Mm -hmm. might have some merit here because I, I think there are some you mentioned the 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 privacy changes with ads and customer acquisition costs going up uh, across the board that is something that 100% we see at Acadia um, we have uh, brands coming to us asking saying that oh our, our current agency is just not delivering the same um, returns that they right. used to we think something's wrong and can you do a better job? And the reality is the world has changed. And, you know, the, the customer acquisition mix that you may have used before is it, it maybe, maybe not going to be profitable for you anymore. So when that's left a lot of D2C, especially D2C only brands, the rug has been pulled out from under their feet and the economic model doesn't make sense anymore. That is at least the argument that that is the case across the board. Um, do you believe that to be true or that I think you mentioned um, even that might be overstated a little bit? Right. And I think I think it is true generally. I think obviously the, the um, you know, it, it's more on a platform by platform basis. Um, but, you know, uh, Meta, Facebook, IG has definitely been the most impacted. And I think that generally holds true across most brands and that I know in, in talking with some brands, they've seen generally their overall um, acquisition co costs, uh, you know, increase or, or the, the uh, level of spend increase by about 50% just to keep the same level of sales as they were you know, driving or seeing a year ago, just because the increase uh, in overall CPCs and, and CACs um, because the identity changes. 
Um, so I think it is, it, it's, is a little bit universal, but I think there, there's more, some platforms that maybe have been impacted more. And I think that's where uh, it, it's kind of been a good shakeup, I think, because uh, that also was the case where, you know, five, six years ago, you had brands that were spending, DTC brands that were spending 100% of their budget on Facebook, and that's all they need to do to scale their business. That has changed, and you need to uh, diversify your your channel um, and marketing mix accordingly to find you know, what are those channels that you can you know, drive you know, more efficient uh, acquisitions and lower costs. And so that's where you have you saw the rise in direct mail again over the last couple of years. You've seen a really huge surge in TV, uh, where that's you know, especially streaming. Um, you have you know the rise of TikTok and a lot of brands really focusing their, or shifting their budgets. So I, I don't think it's it's um, you know the case where it's so ex exorbitantly expensive that you just can't um, efficiently acquire customers anywhere. It's just a matter of finding that right mix now for your brand, for your customer. Um, and and it, it's taking a little bit more, I guess, strategic thought to, to figuring out that mix as opposed to what it maybe used to be where you could just put 100% of your budget in Facebook and expect uh, you to you know, continue to, to grow uh, you know, massively month over month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and to the to that point, like a, a lot of the brands that approach us, it, we're sort of redirecting towards Amazon, for example, or SEO, which can be sort of like a long-term, you know, there's a long-term investment there, but it is, there is more of a degree of ownership over organic traffic influencer and organic social. So there's, there's other, there's other channels here, but it was, um, you know, a lot of brands were hooked on those, yes. on those CPCs from from Facebook, and that banking on the fact that they would be, that they would stay the same, which yeah, hasn't yeah. borne out. Yeah, and it left them kind of um, in a tough spot. But yeah, you, you bring up a good point, and I think that's where I've definitely seen that as well. Where um, with some of the retail media networks and like an Amazon, um, and I think uh, it's I've, I've seen more conversations about this. But yeah, uh, there there has been a case now um, that uh, you know previously could be made, but I think even more so now with the changes and um, you know increasing acquisition costs on a DTC channel, an Amazon you know um, marketplace and acquisition on Amazon. Um, you know, is likely more efficient in, in you know, many cases so that, that it's maybe you know, made it more appealing to um, go a little bit heavier on Amazon or some of the other marketplaces for, for these DTC brands than it, than it previously was. Yeah. So any, any other sort of any other skeptical takes that you think have have merit? Yeah, I think the the other one um, that I, I think is valid is just the overall, um, you know, the sustainability of, you know, the, 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 the lower price point items. And I think I brought this up uh, or mentioned this earlier. I think that's where the brands that I've worked with maybe have a little different um, experience because the, their higher price point, um, you know, higher unit, um, you know, uh, averages uh, or sales price. And so that's helped um, kind of offset. But I, I think with lower commoditized products, um, that that will be the first one to go away and and that's uh, it's it's unfortunate but i think it's just a reality of the the economic uh, model that exists there and that there was a lot of money being thrown around to to scaling um these these lower price points or um you know lower aov um products that just i, I think the market doesn't bear out anymore um so mm -hmm. 
I think that that's where it's it's now kind of a shift to looking at these other channel options um, or, or avenues to deliver those products. So whether that is a last mile delivery, um, like an Instacart or using a, a store delivery, whether that's Kroger, Walmart, et cetera. And, you know, I think there's still a question about bearing out those unit economics for those retailers, but at least it's the retailers, you know, generally speaking right now that need to figure that out and you're not putting the burden on your own P&L um, in business. Yeah, definitely. So um, we are almost about to wrap up here. Um, I'm curious uh, about the role of marketplaces like Amazon, Walmart, um, you know, Kroger is a marketplace now as well. Every, every retailer is becoming both a marketplace and a media platform, which is very interesting to watch. But curious to see how, how you see marketplaces actually benefiting D2C and in-store sales and I asked that question with the context of not so long ago, a lot of brands saw marketplaces as being dilutive and potentially cannibalizing their in-store sales in particular. And I've, I've seen that shift a little bit over time. I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think this is um, kind of perception of, of marketplaces or Amazon was one of my biggest pet peeves uh, for, for the longest time, <laughs> quite frankly, in that, um, you know, I had a lot of conversations and saw a lot of talk of these DTC only brands and that they were, um, you know, uh, very uh, dismissive of marketplaces or Amazon. And to your point about it being dilutive to the brand and, you know, cannibalizing their their DTC business and, you know, completely, uh, you know, uh, disregarding the fact that uh, their products likely were already being sold on these marketplaces. Um, and they were just missing 70% of the population that has a prime membership. Um, and I think that that kind of head in the sand mentality is what kind of led to this, this kind of current state of the DTC world that we're in. Um, and thankfully, I think there's been a mind shift change in some instances where brands are realizing that you know, it, it's not a, a, a zero-sum game. You can grow a DTC channel as well as a, a, you know, a marketplace or an Amazon business. And you, you should actually take that approach because uh, if you're not, you're, you're letting resellers uh, you know, take control of your, your discovery and your, your brand narrative. Um, you're also missing out again on 70% of the population um, that should be a discovery um, platform for, for your brand. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think that, that mindset has started to change. It's still not yeah. um, universal, but I think that's been a positive in my mind and that it, it has finally you know, forced uh, some, some, some people in the, the space or some brands to rethink that, uh, that their relationship with marketplaces for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've seen really positively, I think, more of a sentiment around people are going to shop where they want to shop. Yeah. And it's not my job to corral them into a different channel that they, if, if they're you know, really active Amazon shoppers, I'm not going to try and tempt them over to my own site just so I can get a bit of extra margin or extra dollars, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, same with the other retailers or in-store. People are, people are going to shop where they want to shop and um, just being receptive to that yep i'm no. glad to see that opinion shift over time <laughs> it's been a long time coming too so yeah, yeah that's for sure so i have just to wrap up calvin a couple of rapid fire e-commerce related questions what have you changed your mind about 
Yeah, I think um, you, you, you kind of mentioned this in, in um, you know, the, the, the last question or um, the last um, you know, topic, but I uh, it, it might be a controversial, controversial take, but you know, speaking of you know, not really restricting or trying to corral people to shop in certain channels or places, I, I've been rethinking my, my whole um, adoption of even the term e-commerce just because last, the last few years have been so transformative with the landscape, with, with retail and, and digital in general. So um, I, I, there's obviously been the omni-channel term that's been ingrained and, and widely adopted, but I really do think a better kind of description or approach would be just commerce because you are hmm. ultimately um, reaching customers wherever they are, however they're shopping. And I think having that approach as opposed to omni-channel it's it's you know even if it is you know a single journey it's still a ch you're still viewing it as a channel um that's yeah. not you're not looking at a social commerce as a you know a content marketing play like i think that shift should be happening because you really are touching um all single touch points of a customer journey mm. um and and i think that shift uh should be happening in terms of how we're kind of thinking about it so um again it, that's that's kind of been my my recent uh I guess a hot topic or hot take that uh, I, I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, interesting terminology does the language we use does make a big difference. To I how think it so. Is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No question. And what are you excited about right now? I think along with that, it's kind of in the same vein, but um, database marketing. So I think uh, that that's definitely been a, a pain uh, pain point. Uh, previously, um, you know, I've been on on kind of marketing teams and, and kind of with legacy mindsets and you know the idea with vanity based metrics and KPIs. And I think that the pandemic um, has you know shifted some of the the uh, mindset in terms of you know more brand based marketing needs to have true performance based metrics to actually justify and measure success as opposed to how many uh, impressions you're driving from a brand campaign. So I think that shift is a good thing because it, it just yeah. really uh, kind of pluses up the overall efforts and, and rigor um, that, that a marketing team and a brand team is, is taking, um, you know, with, with any of their camp campaigns. So I think that is a, um, you know, a positive uh, thing. And obviously I've, I've kind of lived with that given my role in my space in the past, but I think it's, it's been exciting um, to see that that's, starting to um, infiltrate uh, the, the, the brand-based marketing as well and start to you know, gain some more widespread adoption as well. Yeah, well, it really backs up your point about if if the point of your DC channel is to collect data, <laughs> better be doing something with it, something yeah. meaningful. It's, you got to make some use out of it. Yeah, it's got yeah. to provide value. Otherwise, it's kind of a, a, a you know, waste or drop in the bucket at the end of the day. Love it. Well, thank you for joining me again today, Calvin. And you know, shaking the tree a little bit on this topic. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. Yeah, this is a great combo. So much appreciated. Mm -hmm.